How might teachers respond when truth seems to be increasingly devalued in what young people read online? I am joined by Erin Oxland to discuss this question and many others along the way. I'm your host, Celeste Kirsch, and we are Teaching Tomorrow. Erin Oxland is the first vice president, lead negotiator, and grievance officer for the Kawartha Pine Ridge Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario. If you're thinking to yourself, that's a really long and impressive title. Well, Erin Oxland is a pretty impressive person. Prior to stepping into this fascinating role, which we definitely get into, by the way, Erin was a middle school teacher in Port Hope, Ontario. In her practice, she prioritized authentic, rich, and relevant learning experiences for her students, which included investigating the intersections of fake news, media literacy, and journalism. You can see why I wanted to have her on the show. Whether you're interested in exploring one teacher's experience with critical media literacy or hearing about her transition from the classroom to being an elected union official, this conversation has something for everyone. Let's get right into it with Erin Oxland. Erin Oxland, I'm so excited to get to talk to you today. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So you're a middle school teacher, and I consider you to be my kind of person. I just feel like middle school teachers, we're like a tribe of educators that, <laughs> I don't know about you, but when I find a middle school teacher, I'm like, oh, you're my person. You're my kind of people. You were an intermediate teacher in Port Hope before yeah. moving into the role of being an executive for your teacher's union. And in all the stuff that I've been reading about you, it's so clear that you valued creating authentic meaningful learning experience for your students. Like, for example, I read about how you helped get students published, which I love. What do you see is the role of teachers of literacy to help prepare young people for the world that they will one day inherit? Oh my gosh. Um, teachers of literacy, it's so important. And I want to make sure that we talk about the fact that that's not just language arts teachers, right? We've got financial literacy and math, and we've been doing that forever. And now the curriculum is finally catching up to that. We've got literacy in STEM. Um, but what an amazing, huge, you know, burden of 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 cre of you know getting these kids to be ready for the future that we don't even know what's what it's going to involve. I mean, we think about pre-pandemic times and we kind of thought where everything was heading and and what a shift that made us all take and think about our future in a different way. I think as teachers, we really need to be focusing on and need to be ready for that diverse population of students and families that we work with. I think it's all about equity and access. It's so overwhelming for teachers right now, right? There's never enough time to do everything. There's like time is such an absence for us. We've got lack of supports and lots of needs. But teachers that I get to work with every day have really high expectations of what they want to do themselves and what they want for their students. And I think literacy, that critical thinking, that um, cultural appreciation, that empathy, that's where it's at. And that's, you know, that's what those are the huge skills that teachers are working on teaching right now. So it's a beautiful thing if we can do all of that and do it with an equity focus. I think that's mm -hmm. going to be the big challenge moving forward and how we do that. Um, for me, I think student agency is such an important part of that. I think that 
you know, the memorable and happy and challenging lessons I've lived in my life have never come out of a classroom, right? They come out of interactions that I have outside, which are basically authentic learning experiences, mm-hmm. right? So recreating that in our classroom for our students is is hard. But, you know, we got to get out of the classroom sometimes. And, and that can be digitally. That can be bringing things in. It doesn't mean always physically walking out. But those authentic experiences, I think, engaging with community, um, getting them to think about the world outside of themselves. I am live and taught for a long time in a small town, and that's not going to be every student's world forever. They're going to go out and experience a larger world, so we need to prepare them for that, and I think the earlier, the better. Yeah, and what I hear you say is that it's not just about school literacy. You know, like there's all these different, like literacy is a plural, actually. There's, you know, the literacies of finance and there's social literacies and there's literacies of being in your community. And that actually, when we're thinking about a diversity of literacies, we're also serving the diversity of our students, whoever are in our classroom. I love that answer. Absolutely. And I mean, we can talk about literacies. I mean, even the digital 21st competencies, those are all literacies, right? Mm -hmm. So all of that stuff, it's, it's, it's big. It's a lot for teachers to tackle, but I think that's the basis of where where we're going to get really amazing growth out of our students. Yeah, you're clearly my kind of teacher. I <laughs> want to uh, come and hang out with you in your classroom, go in a time machine and be a student in your class once upon a time. Um, I found you because of an article that you wrote about some of the work that you've done with your students around deconstructing misinformation. And this is going to be a major theme of the podcast, the Teaching Tomorrow podcast this season. Noticing the things that you did with your class, you created a class newspaper, which is no small feat as somebody who's done that as well. That takes a ton of time and effort and care and focus. Um, But you also, you know, more, uh, you know, on an everyday basis, had your students read the news, just like an everyday regular practice. Tell us why teaching about and through the news was important to you as an educator. Uh, First, it starts with me as a person, right? I I love the news. I'm a news person and not just the news, but politics and travel and and knowing about the world around me. Um, And I think that that's where it comes from and and books from all kinds of different countries and that kind of thing. That's always been interesting to me. But I think... um, you know, I started doing kind of, you know, fake news units, which which is what we called it then, way before kind of that era of Trump, before a lot of people were talking about it. And I had um, really been using a lot of the resources that Civics, which is a Canadian organization, had started, right? They've got this great program where you can bring in your MPP to talk to your classes. They've got democracy boot camps for teachers where you can go and connect with other like-minded folks. Um, And they also do the student vote program. So I'd been doing that for quite a while. And then I ended up actually writing curriculum for them. So I ended up getting more involved. And I wrote a lot of the federal elementary curriculum and got to edit and, and kind of engage with it in a different way. And so I'd been doing that. But then when Trump hit, right, like everything kind of shifted. And and at the time I was, I was teaching um, kind of this intermediate congregated gifted class, and, and they were really keen. And but I saw these kids coming in and talking about, you know, where I used to just talk about, like, what are the fake websites we should avoid? And no, there isn't a Pacific tree octopus, you know, way back in the day. Now, suddenly we're talking about 
you know, respected people or people in respected positions saying things that are just blatantly untrue. And this is even leading up to his first election. And and I think things started changing. And I saw saw these kids coming in and they were talking about not only the disinformation as though is it true, but also there was this feeling of like, it doesn't matter if it's true or not because it's funny. Yeah. And so there was that lack of what's the consequence of that. Where's the human impact that they didn't seem to understand that this stuff, which felt very far removed because it was, you know, the time mostly in the US or it was online, it was far removed for us. We didn't see the human impact of that. What's the human impact of, you know, someone talking about? And of course, we can talk about how misinformation, disinformation has just exploded since then, right? I mean, I wrote that article pre pandemic. We've had vaccine misinformation like there's so much more that someone whoever's going to write the next article it's going to be so much more comprehensive because so much has changed so I think that was important to show the impact in a human way and to start them thinking about putting themselves into that story and into that picture and 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 the news helps us with that right so we used a lot of resources CBC's got some great um, resources teachers can get producers into their classroom I would show CNN 10 every morning which you know wish there was a Canadian version but even that lends to good discussion so it shows the world right there's this big beautiful world out there with some really big serious issues and they need to figure out how to sift through what is now mountains of information I can't imagine I didn't have that when I was a kid growing up right so being able to decipher what they're seeing is it legitimate? How does it impact them? And how is it impacting the people it's about? I think mm-hmm. that's really important. And especially at an intermediate level, you know, when I was teaching grade eight, 99% of all my students had a phone. And so yeah. they were engaging with these platforms. And, they, you know, my students were not getting, quote unquote, the news from going on to cbc.ca. They would do that when it was in our class. And it was like, let's go on to this news site. But they were getting their news from TikTok. They were getting their news from yep. Snapchat. And it was a very different, like the platformization of how they are engaging. It's so much harder to tell what is real and genuine in that kind of format. And just teaching them what 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 is reliable and maybe what isn't and why. And I mean, like a lot of those news organizations now are, I mean, they're on Twitter. They're, they're, they're posting things on TikTok. They're posting little videos that can be shared easily on, on different platforms. So I think it's, we've got to remember that platforms are going to change, right? What, what the students used on their phones at the beginning, like 10 years ago is not what they're using on their phones now. So mm-hmm. we need to kind of not worry as much about whether it's TikTok or Twitter, but we need to talk about, it's just this information that they're getting. How are they getting it? And how do we help them decipher? Um, because yeah. those platforms are going to change and they change so quickly, right? There are apps that I don't even know what they do, um, <laughs> but they're important and they're important because students are using them. And yes. so that's, we don't want to dismiss them. Exactly. And there is legitimate news that's being presented in, you know, a TikTok format. And I think that- Absolutely. That's also important for young people to engage with. Like I have somebody who, you know, by this time, the podcast coming out, this will already be released. But Anita Lee, who is the founder of the Green Line Toronto, all of their news is just on platforms. It's on TikTok, it's Instagram, and they're designing it for young people to be easily digested. So, you know, the educators in the classrooms today that are thinking about how to engage young people to become strong, critical readers have to be contending with like you said, what young people are using, because that's, that's why it matters. 
And it's scary. It's scary for teachers, right? Because you don't want to do anything wrong. You don't want to inadvertently show something or, or be seen as promoting something mm-hmm. that could lead a student or down a wrong path, but they've got it. And so if we teach them to deal with it, um, it's definitely healthier than just kind of ignoring it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's actually a good pivot point because in your new role, you're really thinking about protecting teachers and supporting and advocating for Am teachers. And let's, I want to go into that because, you know, this transition I'm sure has been pretty profound for you in a different capacity. Tell us about that shift. What led you to make that move? It's a pretty drastic change to not be in a classroom and to be working in more of an administration role. What do you love about this new role? And what do you perhaps miss about being an intermediate teacher? Oh, that's a good question. And it is a really big shift. I, my mom was a union leader in her local when she was a teacher. So I kind of knew that the union was, you know, good thing. It helped teachers out. And so I started, um, you know, paying attention to union events, probably when I started teaching, I've been teaching about 18 years. And I mean, there's such camaraderie and strength when you're working together and you're supporting each other's colleagues. And I think that's where the union really comes in. So I started off, I was, you know, a steward in a school, and then a steward in another school and a steward in a school is that person who you can go to and ask questions about anything, right? The steward is, is the union's rep in that school and they're the ones who help you with your collective agreement and make sure that you're getting, you know, the leave days that you're entitled to. If you need to take something for bereavement, they're making sure that you know about all of the professional development that the union offers and so much more. So I started going to meetings and committees and went to ETFO, which is the elementary public school teachers. That's the um, union that I'm part of. Um, Went to their annual meeting in Toronto a few times, was elected here locally to go. And I mean, ETFO is 83,000 teachers across Ontario. It's, It's enormous. And so 700 teachers show up at this annual meeting in the summer. And it's inspiring and amazing to connect with people all over and realize all the commonalities that you have and the challenges, but also hearing about unique challenges if you're in Toronto or if you're way up north um, you know things that we're not necessarily experiencing in our in our local so you know I, I just kind of kept getting involved and eventually ran for executive and in our local um, we have three people who work in the office full-time and so I was on executive for a few years while I was teaching and then now I'm in the role of first vice president which is one of our three released officers. That means we're released from the classroom and then we work in the office. So it's amazing. It's a unique (laughs) job. I've got this privilege of representing and advocating for the teachers. um, And I love it. It's great. But yeah, I mean, what, what do I miss about the classroom? The students, mm. right? I mean, I get to work with teachers every day and they're amazing. But um, of course, I miss the students. I mean, especially grade seven and eight. Like, I love that age group. And I think they're honest and they're brilliant and they're caring. And it's just wrapped up in these hormones and insecurities. <laughs> and you can peel that away and just you can do so much with them. It's just wonderful. I want to go back to the idea of the election because you kind of just like said it like, oh, and then there was election and la la la, I'm here. Yeah. (laughs) You know, like not to brush that past, but you know, most people when they're thinking about 
you know, a classroom adjacent role, it's not being elected. You don't have to have like people choose you or vote for you. Was that a hindrance to you in applying for this job? Like I use applying in budding quotes because it's not an application, but it's like a public application, you know? So tell me about being elected into your job. What is that like? It's, it's not my natural place to be, uh, (laughs) you know, a being a politician of sorts is not something that I thought I would do. I've always loved politics, but more in the behind the scenes. Um, So yeah, it's, it's very daunting, right. To put yourself out there. We have, you know, about 1400 teachers in our local who have the opportunity and, and I'm coming up to the end of my first term and there'll be another election. And, and that's how we do it. It's, it's very democratic and transparent and the teachers get to decide who lead them. And, everybody who is a leader in Netfo is also a teacher. And I think that's important. It brings, it brings something. Um, So yeah, I got to put myself out there and, you know, do a speech and send a poster out into the internets and cross my fingers and hope that people like the job that I'm doing. And, and so um, that's how it works. When you were first elected to be the first vice president. Yeah. Like, were you going up against like an incumbent? Were you like, were you like, oh, I'm totally going to get this. Like, there's no one else going for it. Was there like 17 people running? Like, what was Aaron like in that process? It was actually a little different. I I kind of fell into it. What happened was our president here at the local moved up into the provincial executive release, which is, which is a big deal. And then our VP moved into the president slot, which is kind of how it's written in our constitution. And then I was elected from the executive. So it wasn't from the entire membership. So um, yeah, so I I was elected and yeah, there was someone else who ran too, very qualified, wonderful person too. And um, I... I was successful in it and I'm happy to be in the job. So that's so it's yeah. intense. Like I just I think of it elections is. from like you, like a viewer of them through TV shows, you know, like that's the, my contacts, sure. Parks and Rec, like these kinds of things where like <laughs> in order to get your job, you have to run. Um, but like a huge congratulations. That's like a yeah. big accomplishment to go through that. It's like a Thank very you. public job interview. It It is. And I think it should be because this yes. is a pretty important job and you want to make sure you've got someone in these roles who have the best interests of the teachers and the contract and who can have those good relationships with the board office um, so that we can keep, you know, things in education don't just get solved through those once every three or four years when we do contracts and, and mm. negotiating. We're in that right now, right? We're negotiating the provincial and local level, but things get solved through those day-to-day conversations about what kind of school board do we want this to be? What do our teachers need for our students? And and being able to advocate for that every day is um, is really important. So I, I think it's, I've all, you know, I already talked about my love of student vote, but I'm a voter. I was, I was mm. ready to vote, like, you know, before I was allowed to legally. And I, and I think that that's just one way in our society that we can, um, really examine who leads us and what kind of people we have. And so I think it's important in the union too. And that, I mean, that is a perfect full circle to the importance of having an educated electorate. Like that's why this matters, why we train young people in thinking critically about the information they consume, because that's how we have a thriving democracy. I didn't even plan for that. That's just like a perfect full circle. 
And I, I know that people listening are thinking like, oh, that might be a really cool role to take on for a few years or something similar to be in like a leadership position. Take us through a day in the life there in Oxland. I know that every day is probably sure. different, but what does your actual job look like on a day-to-day basis? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it changes up. Like I'm really lucky there's no typical day. I like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I like about teaching too. Uh, but you know, the first thing I do is I respond to emails because my email VIN is always enormously full. So okay, how many to, do you have? How many do you have on a given well, morning? I, so curious. <laughs> I'm one of those people who strive for like inbox zero yes. and as much as I can. So right now I've got probably about 20 in my box. But when I when I finish this with you, I'll probably be right back out to in the 50s. But I, I get a lot of emails and um and, and they're tough. They can range from people, you know, having a really tough time and and having some medical or mental health challenges. It ranges to people having questions about staffing. We just started staffing in our board. It's confusing. It doesn't make sense, especially to new teachers. So making sure that everyone knows what they can apply to, what they can't apply to, um, you know, part-time teachers trying to get contract, all that kind of stuff. So there's lots of staffing. We're in the middle of negotiating right now so well we're going to start negotiating soon but you know so people have um contract questions uh people have conflict right with sometimes with other teachers often with administrators right so how do we navigate that or an administrator is asking me to do this and the contract says this how do i figure this out how do we sort it out so lots of emails um you know, teacher appraisals, all those kinds of things. So it can be very varied. And so I spend a lot of time on emails and then meetings take up a large portion of my job. So um, right now we're starting bargaining this spring. I'm the lead negotiator. So I've got a team and we're getting, you know, our preliminary submission out to our members so they can vote on it. I'm the grievance officer. So if there's ever something that we can't sort out with um, the board and the labor relations, then we might go to a grievance. Um, so that's that role of protecting this collective agreement that we have with the board. And, you know, there's there's a team of us here in the office and we work together, we check in and we're constantly talking and working with the board on issues like special education and violence in the classrooms and um, staffing, health and safety making sure that our teachers have what they need. And, you know, we we visit all our schools. We have 73 schools, so we try and, you know, visit them as often as we can. And what's amazing, I think, about teachers in education right now is when you sit down and you say, okay, what do you want? Like, we're going to start local bargaining. What do you want? And everything that they talk about is about things that they, their students need, hmm. right? It's it's never like, I need more of this or this for myself. They're talking about what they what they need to do their job better to make their students more successful, and that's amazing. Yeah, I'm on committees with the board office, so they have committees with trustees like equity, diversity, and inclusion, and wellness, and you know, so I do a lot of those, and then I work individually with teachers who need help. Hmm. So it's always different. Lots of meetings and emails. It's very different from being in classroom. A lot more time sitting, I imagine. Lots more time sitting. Yeah, that's right. On your screen. Um, Got to get away from the screens and go for walks lots. But yeah. But I imagine really enriching too to get to visit the 70 some odd schools that you have and get to see so many different contexts for classrooms. And I don't know if you see yourself going back to the classroom one day or if you see yourself going into higher ed or doing another degree. Like, I mean, maybe we can get into that. But I also wonder now that you've seen this 
different angle of education and classrooms. If you were to transport yourself back into the classroom, what do you think you would do differently? Like what would be some of the projects or big ideas or new questions that you would want to explore? Who might Aaron be when you return to being Miss Oxland, if that is ever a thing on the table for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so if I was to jump back in tomorrow, I mean, I love the job I'm in right now and and I'm going to, you know, try and stick with it. But if, if I was going to jump back into teaching tomorrow, I think um, there's a lot I do the same, a lot of teaching of equity, mm-hmm. um, that, that, that understanding of the world around us, that critical thinking, all that digital stuff. Um, but there's a lot, I, I've learned a lot and the world's different. Like I, I left teaching two years ago and that seems like such a short time, but really we were just coming off the pandemic. I haven't taught in a school since those restrictions have lifted yeah. since we were like the last year I was in, we were in the building, but we were still ha- had, you know, shutdowns over the winter. So, so much has changed. And I think, um, you know, I think I just, I, I would probably do things better. Um, <laughs> I've, I've learned a lot. I've worked a lot this year with um, teachers who are teaching and living with disabilities. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that, that I, I just, you know, never addressed in class. I think there's yeah. a lot of equity learning I've done that, that I can really take back in. But I think, I think there's a lot of value in them. Um, I'd like to look at just making sure kids know the power that they have. I think when they're using all of these apps, I don't think they always realize how those apps are monetizing and profiting off of them and and how the choices that they're making are actually affecting what they're getting back. And yeah. I think that there's some really great research right now into that and how we can we can teach kids to use their power for good online too. And I think that comes back to that student advocacy piece of of making sure that they know that they're not just at the whim of Twitter or TikTok, but they actually have a really strong amount of of push of 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 capital yeah. that they can use to affect change. And and I think that's it's still, it's, you know, something that I was doing before, but it's just different now. Right. So I think, um, yeah, it's that shift of using the digital rather than being a conscious consumer or a critical consumer to being a inventor, like to be an inventor of literacy practices rather than, you know, I think it's important to be critically literate and to be taking in information discerningly, but then there's a whole other layer when you're creating it yourself. And to have that awareness of, like you said, like the algorithmic literacy is a whole nother layer that I think we're just starting to pay attention to now. Well, and we can look at, I mean, even in the past, we can look at the the youth environment movements, right? Our mm-hmm. climate days of action and that those are youth who are creating. We have a lot of youth who are creating, right? Whether it's you're streaming your Minecraft, um, you know, sessions or you're creating for mass, you know, mass protests and mass movement. Mm-hmm. I mean, how they react and interact with media, the images, the videos that they choose to see, how they frame all of that. I mean, that's that's the backbone of how this generation is going to delve into things like healthcare, climate change, mm-hmm. education, politics, war the war in the Ukraine, like I see things all the time. I, I'm i a constant bookmarker of things that, you know, oh my gosh, that would be great. Like my brain is still in the classroom in that sense where I see things that I want to address. And um, 
you know, the war in the Ukraine, like how, how are Ukrainians fighting back and creating to counter misinformation? Um, I think there's so much there that the teachers can, can delve into and, and, I'm quite jealous of that. Sometimes. <laughs> I can see like, just like your energy, because it's so clear that you are passionate about education and young people and equity. Do you know like what your 10 year vision is? Like, can like, what is the trajectory for somebody in your role? Is there like a limited term appointment? Can you stay in this for the rest of your life? Like how long are you allowed to do your job? So I can stay in this as long as, as I'm reelected, I can stay in this role. So this is great. I think this is a place where I fit really well. Um, So I think, I think I will explore this as, as long as I can. And um, I'm a lifelong learner and this was a big shift and, and there's a lot to learn, not just in the local union, but there's a provincial union too. Like we're part of a larger, um, the larger labor movement, I'm going to be a, a delegate to the Canadian Labor Congress in Montreal later in May. So there are larger labor movements and stories that I'm still learning about. And I love that. I've always been been a learner myself. So this mm-hmm. it's nice to tackle something new. So I think this is the plan for right now. And I'll do it for as, as long as I can. But um, you know, being back in the classroom is is awesome, too. Right. So that's all. I think I'll be happy wherever I end up. Well, I can see that passion and that learner's mindset so clearly in what you're saying. And it's so important to have people like you, especially representing teachers and education. So wherever you go, whatever you do, I am sure that you will crush it and be a rock star in that role. Uh, thanks so much. <laughs> Are we going to transition to the ticket out the door? Are you ready for a series of Absolutely rapid fire not. questions? <laughs> not at all, but go for it. Something you are grateful for right now. My son. Oh, yeah. He brings me such just such happiness. He's such a happy, fun kid to be around. Oh, I love that. What's the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning? This is terrible. I check my email. Yeah, check your email. Before yeah. I even get out of bed. I know. But I just want to make sure that there's, you know, nothing like absolutely urgent that someone really needs before. I don't always answer. Yeah. I want to answer everything, but I always check my email. Do you have your work email on your phone? Of course I do. (laughs) You know, because, you know, emergencies don't happen just Monday to Friday during work hours, right? And you got to be there for your peeps, right? So yeah, yeah, it's a different kind of role when you're serving teachers in this way. What's the last thing you do before you go to bed? Uh, Read. Mm, What are you reading right now? Um, I have so much, but actually I'm reading for a book club. Our political action committee is doing a book club and there's a book called, um, class action. And it's all about the history of Edfo. Oh, cool. And then I also, um, just finished the sleeping car Porter, which we did for another book club. And yeah, so trying to get through the, the stuff I'm supposed to be reading, but I listen to a lot of audiobooks in the car on my commute too. That's the more fun stuff. Yeah. So good to be able to have that content coming into your ears. Like there's not always time to read and I'm sure in your role, you're very busy. So that's so good. Uh, What was the most recent TV show you binged and loved? Oh um, yeah. So I've just, I'm, it's not quite done, but the third season of Ted Lasso. Ah, I I mean, like I can't, yeah, it's just, it makes me happy. It was I one don't... of those shows I had never watched. And then during the pandemic, um, I watched Schitt's Creek and that one. And it just, it just got me happy. So it's yeah. just so important to have those feel good shows. Like I mentioned, Absolutely. Parks and Rec and like those shows where you yeah. just, you feel better after you watch them. Pie or cake? Cake. 
Beach or mountains? Beach. Spring or fall? Fall. Tacos or nachos? Tacos. Oh, yes. You were like That's so prepared. <laughs> I think you're like the fastest ever answering those like rapid, rapid fire. I love it. Uh, if you were starting a podcast, who would be your first three guests? Oh, gosh. Um, I think I would choose Bill Gates. Mm. Yourself. Since Aww. this is my first podcast, <laughs> I'd be and delighted. and I don't know. I'd want something really diverse, like people who can. I I always like conversations when people are from really different, like you know, not all educators, but from different areas. Mm-hmm. Um, so probably someone from maybe from the medical field. I think Ooh. that would be interesting, right? Someone in mm-hmm. education, someone from medical, and someone from from tech would be interesting. So yeah. Why Bill, why Bill Gates? Like what was, um, what's he standing out for you? I, you know, I watched this Netflix series on him. I think it was, it's from a few years ago, um, recently. And it was just so interesting. Uh, first of all, he's an avid reader and mm-hmm. it, they talked about how much he reads and he travels with these tote bags of 30 books at a time. <laughs> and so I was just so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I was so intrigued by like, what is he reading and, and what does he get out of it? And then just the vast diversity of all the, of all the really interesting things that he's into. Um, toilets is something that, that um, he was really into and the impact that that has on everything. Wow. Education, kids going to school, clean water systems, healthcare. And so there's, yeah, I, I just, I found, I found it fascinating. Yeah. He was one of those people that uh, predicted, I don't know if predicted is the right word, but named how vulnerable we are as a society to something like a pandemic well yeah. before 2020. So interesting. His, his mind would be an interesting one to pick. Well, and I think it's just because of his status too. He has access to all these other brilliant minds, right? And he brings them together from different fields. So he can mm. kind of see that overview, which I think is really important. I would we're like all, another... We're always kind of in our in our bubbles, right? Mm-hmm. But I feel like if we can cross over, we sometimes get better results. That's that's a great philosophy for life. The final question, you can enter into it however you want. What is the future of learning? It's interactive it's got to be it's got to involve everyone right um it has to involve students it's we've got to focus on where they're at but show them all there are possibilities it's it's got to be everyone working on it together oh that could be your campaign slogan for when you (laughs) run again the future of learning is everyone working together it it has to involve everyone it's got to involve everyone right and and not just students but their families and and you know we we have so many families who are hesitant to come into school buildings and and I I think we need to we need to start seeing ourselves in in that broader community right that is a perfect global local community so you know yeah that's perfect. This is a great place to close. Erin Oxland, it was such a joy to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming and being uh, a guest. Thanks so much. There's so much to marinate in with that episode. Maybe it's because of my own positionality as a teacher who's not currently in the classroom, but I especially love the perspective that Erin shares when I asked her about what she would do differently if she were to slide back into a classroom teaching role. I agree wholeheartedly with her vision for helping young people use their digital power for good and allowing them to see that they are not just at the whim of the platforms that they spend time on. 
I know I've referenced it before on the show, but if something about this idea speaks to you, I definitely recommend the book by any media necessary. There are many authors listed, but Henry Jenkins is the first one on that one. Did anyone else see the meme going around about multiple author works and that et al should be replaced by and the gang? So now I just wanna say that by any media necessary is written by Jenkins and the gang. Oh man, this just took a very nerdy turn very fast. I apologize. That's all the time we have for today, folks. If you've been getting something of value from this season, please take a moment to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Follow the show on Instagram at teaching underscore tomorrow and or share the show with a friend. It's the little things that matter and make our connections to each other mean something. Keep using your digital power for good. And remember, we are teaching tomorrow.